0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York, boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from VisitIthaca.com.
2: Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's Program Manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for... $10 $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate today. And Thank you.
3: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the foundation's executive director. Our show takes you inside the foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome David Matchett from London's Borough Market. In today's episode, we'll talk to David about how a 1,000 year old food market helped foster the food revolution in the UK its focus on sustainability, and we'll hear David's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. It's easy to conjure up an image of Julia strolling through an outdoor food market in Paris, hand-selecting vegetables to make ratatouille, or visiting a fishmonger in Marseille to make, make a bouillabaisse. These market scenes are one of the charms of France and other idyllic European cities loved by Americans. There's nothing like the bustling atmosphere of an outdoor market where you can buy food and other provisions, as Europeans have done for thousands of years. Now, this romantic image doesn't typically extend to Britain. When most Americans think of British food, they still imagine greasy fried pub food, tasteless roasts, and mushy peas. And it's true, Great Britain is still recovering from its past food ills. But to be fair, most of this stems from the aftermath of the devastation and deprivation of World War II, combined with the embrace of industrial food production to aid in that recovery. Places like London's Borough Market, a market that dates to before the Norman conquest of England, is a beacon representing a return to that idyllic past. Historically, all over Britain, outdoor markets, just like Julia visited in France, were the norm. For hundreds of years, that is exactly how people in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland shopped for their food and provisions. They also knew fresh, well-produced food when they saw it, just like Julia in Paris. And just as Julia sounded the alarm when she returned home to America, horrified by what she found in supposedly cutting-edge supermarkets, borough marketists weathered time, war, and other strife to make a clarion call for doing things more like in the past, not because it's archaic, but because it's both more sustainable and tastier. While we don't have any charming footage of Julia carrying a basket through Borough Market, it's the same legacy. Joining us today to enlighten us about all that Borough Market offers is its head of food policy development, David Matchett. David leads initiatives to create innovative partnerships with producers and focuses on sustainability. With a long career in the food world, including working for various Jamie Oliver ventures, he's been employed by the Borough Market Trust for the past 11 years and started out selling bread at one of the market stalls. At the foundation, we met David in his role as a trustee of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, an annual conference at Oxford University, which gathers deep thinkers on food from around the world to share ideas and eat well. The foundation has for several years provided a grant to this symposium that enables student food scholars to attend and present
4: papers. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to see you again, and welcome to Borough Market. It's lovely to have you here. And uh, you just conjured up a picture of um, someone, w- of Julia, walking through the market, and, and, and I could imagine her being here and being one of the shoppers here. And, uh, you know, very much especially in, in, in uh, the initial, inca- this incarnation of Borough Market that took place 21 years ago now, and it was headed up by a, a visionary lady called Henrietta Green, um, and also the, the two fat ladies, uh, Clarissa Dixon-Wright and um, Jennifer Patterson. So sort of like strong women committed to food and food values are very, very much at the heart and core of Borough Market.
3: That's great. And yes, thank you for bringing in that We are actually recording live at Borough Market in London today, which is quite exciting. So you were just saying a little bit about the history of the market, and I liked... I liked but was surprised when you marry up the history of how old the market is with its current purpose to promote an alternative system of food production isn't necessarily what you expect from a historic market. So what 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 does that mean or how does it tie
4: together? Well, it's very interesting because Borough Market is, um, you know, we're we're a charitable trust um, operated by a board of trustees and the commitment is um, for, for our trustees is to provide a market for the public benefit In perpetuity so by its very nature we're committed to sustainability because we're committed to having a market here for the future what that means and um, how we work with that i mean that's it's an ongoing it's a complete work in progress and always has been a work in progress for us Um, so i mean the alternative systems of food production i would say that as you mentioned we're still in recovery in one way um, from post-war industrial production um, in, in you know, in the UK, uh, I think on a benefit, some of the benefits that has come out of that is that we have actually got some of the highest values in food production across the world. We informed a lot of the European unions, um, especially on animal welfare. Um, so there's a lot in terms of what that alternative can be in terms of making sure that we're getting the best food possible and also the one that actually considers the, you know, the environment. Um, and it's my job to, to find those producers that best reflect that, give them an opportunity. Um, and also other initiatives, um, maybe more urban based because you know London is a city with 10 million people in it. We, 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 farmers markets um, are a very different animal over here than they are you know, in the States. So we're not a farmer's market, but we do actually have a lot of farms that come and supply you know, to the market.
3: Well and that that was something I wanted to talk about because I think it's helpful to put markets in context because there are different types there's a kind of european model that that's very old um, that varies between sort of cities and and more re- towns that are closer to to farm farms and food producers or or um I guess ranchers is, is the word I'm looking for. And then there's there's urban markets. And then there's sort of what Americans have gotten used to of, of, of farmers markets, which are, which are very much farmers from some surrounding region coming in and setting up, often in a sort of temporary venue. So let's start with, in your mind, how is Bor- borough market... Like and unlike other European ones, and you could, if it's easier to narrow it down, sort of the ones that you know people would be familiar from seeing, you know, a movie about Julia
4: where she's in, in, in a, a Paris market. I, I would say that what they all have in common, um, and it goes back to the ancient Greek, the agora, that actually the marketplace. I always say the marketplace came secondary. To the fact that people were actually meeting and congregating and when they met and congregated then a retail offer came on the outside of it (laughs) Um, however that was 2,000 years ago we've had a lot of time to evolve so but very very much this place of connection and meeting is fundamental and I think that that's what one of the similarities that um, is through markets around the world because when you go to a supermarket, you can go shopping, and now you don't need to speak to anyone, you don't need to talk to anyone about your food. They don't need to inform you about your food. You can walk out and you become a customer of the supermarket well sorry, an employee of the supermarket as well as a customer, as you check your goods out and then walk out of the store and you haven't spoken to anyone. Every market in the world that you go to, you have to engage with someone to buy your produce. And that little bit of human connection means that you know they, they, they're thinking of their next sale. They've got that one with you. So they want to look after you. Um, they want to connect with you. They want to make sure that you're okay because they want your business. That's fundamental to sustainability. So I think that that's one of the things that unites us with markets everywhere. Borough Market, as I said, isn't a farmer's market. Um, and 21 years ago, I think there were only about two or three farmer's markets in London operating in various areas. Now there's about 50. Um, so we have never the the original uh, farmers that came to Borough Market and the original fishmongers were coming from maybe further away, they were coming from 200 miles away I think by definition for a farmer's market in London you have to be a hundred miles away, uh, you know, to to qualify for that. But there's a place for all of us because the most important thing is about this connection and having people connected to the food, connected to the people that buy it. Um, And we're all in it together because we all want better values in food production um, throughout the country. So um, I know that the, um, in America there's a, an amazing farmers market uh, scene that's over there, and people that are committed are really committed. I know that I've met some people from Detroit, and it seems to be very, very much the, a bit of a food revolution that's taken place over there. So I think another way where we can be connected is to be um, to look at markets, you know, the large markets of the world as well as the small markets, so that we can all learn from each other because we're all committed. To um, you know, to food and to connection. So I think y- you've been
3: been involved with the borough market for a long time, so it's very intimately familiar to you. But um, since we're on radio and podcast rather than than television, maybe you could also just describe physically. Um, how the market looks and arranged and how the um, sellers sell, and that would also help people contrast how it's different than a maybe a, a, an American farmer's market in their community that they might be used to. How is it physically laid out? How do the traders
4: work here? Well, we're as I said, we've, we've, we've been, and uh, there's been a market on this site for a thousand years, um, at least a thousand years. The, the Romans came 2,000 years ago and had a settlement here. But fundamentally, the changes took place around about the 1750s, was when the current market was actually established and bought by the people. So, Borough Market is built over four railway arches. No, it's actually built underneath four railway arches. The market was there before the railway arches <laughs> were built, but that's had an impact each time that they have. Um, you know that they've they've put they've, a train across. They put a train across, so um, it also explains as a this, the sound of the market is always sort of like the, the rolling of trains every now and again, which is not good for some of the uh, TV crews whenever they come in. So um, we have um, about sixty umbrellas uh, stalls that are under umbrellas, and these are day traders that um, will come in and they sell various you know various types of produce. Um, they also then we also have uh stands which people can take leases on these are locked up every night um so it's um, a lot of metal around um i don't know I, th- I think it's the sounds and the smells i'm trying to convey this sense of um the sounds and the smells it's sort of like a, it goes backwards and forwards in time i feel whenever we're walking around you get um there's a lot of seeing that the market has been designed in such a way that you can see the outside the outside of the street as well as the inside of the market, and that was a a plan to bring the outside in so that it feels very open. Again, that's maybe one of the differences that you would find with supermarkets where they're very impersonal and very highly regimented. We made sure here that things are a little bit accidental and uh, you know there's, we don't have sort of like a grid system it's almost it's not a
3: perfect rectangle it's
4: not a perfect <laughs> rectangle and we don't want it to be because you want it to be sort of like a place that you can go and um, I suppose be curious and sometimes confusion is part of curiosity about where is that and why is it there but I would say that there is actually zoning that there are areas um, <laughs> just,
3: just, just in case anyone is listening. well there,
4: yeah <laughs> they're very yeah there are there are zones where we have sort of like an area where there is the focus on cheese um, but as I always say, when we were curating it, we also made sure that there was bread at the outside and then beside the bread you can stand at the bread stall and you can see butter and then on the other side of the butter stall you can see some tea. So you have tea bread and butter. So there's lots of these little incidental journeys that we put through. Um, and people, I think, have... Um, we, we get a lot of visitors from America and uh, from all over the world that come here, That people with... Um, want to come and see. There's there's a magic here that I think that has always been here, um, and they. I think maybe one of the differences between what you may find in a in a in, a, in an American farmers market or just the the, the the people that come in, the variety of people and the number of people that come in during the course of the week.
3: Well, I think another difference is it's a
4: permanent market. Is yes. it
3: Open every every day of the year, or almost every day of the
4: year. We're open currently open Monday to Saturday. And uh, Sundays, um, sometimes our community day, where we have community events as well, because we never forget that, um, you know, we're here for the public and we're here for our local community. So we sometimes celebrate our Saints' Days, um, St. George's Day. We also have a Harvest Day every year. Um, where the focus becomes just on coming in and, and, and celebrating food rather than being the purpose of buying food. So again it's to get that level of engagement and um, I think another thing that I would say from uh, what what makes us different and uh, my, 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 my colleague Claire Ford um, has uh, in charge of our demo kitchen because you can come and see chefs demonstrating the wonderful food that's in the market. Um, we have our own magazine, the Market Life magazine, award winning magazine yeah. from the Guild of Food Writers. Um, we've got a committee commitment to education. Um and um a cookbook club where um, Angela Clutton ha- um, holds a cookbook club in this very space that we're in at the moment where um, you know a recipe is chosen from a, a, a cookbook and or well not a recipe, but a cookbook is chosen, then people can come in and bring in their recipes that the, the food that they've made and, and and have a celebration of that food and a discussion about it. So again, this engaging with the community that this is what um, you know part of what we've been developing and what we wish to you know further develop, which a farmers' market it's a different animal. And again, as you said, it's because we're here permanently and we've got to be here in perpetuity. That's what we've all signed up to. Well, I think that, that's
3: an amazing thought to think that a group of people have organized something and said, our goal is to always be here forever. And and that, that's that, that's very unusual mm-hmm. and, and and noble. And I think, like you were saying about the permanency of the market is not only is the market got a physical structure, even though it's open air to a certain degree, But it's interrelationship with the neighborhood. So I think part of what, in addition to having, you know, bread, cheese, um, number of butchers, lots of fishmongers, probably compared to what Americans are used to, it has less produce vendors. Mm. It's more provisions and Mm. and other um, uh, traders. But then there's also this interrelationship where the market sort of spills out into the surrounding streets and that... There are restaurants, some of which are kind of in the market, and some of which are actually technically across the street, but they're in an in a sense part of the market atmosphere, that that permanent.
4: Absolutely. Well again, this comes down to again the, the you mentioned about the people having the, the, the vision um, and the, the determination to have a market in perpetuity. Um, part of the estate that we're actually on was as a result of people actually bequeathing their properties to the you know to the trust going back into the 1800s. So, you know, this was a very important place for people then. And that legacy is, you know, I think it's, you mentioned I was very close to the market and it's become part of my life in London. And I think that that is part of that legacy for people that were committed to a place that they loved so much, or that they needed so much, they bequeathed their properties to it, and we're still benefiting from that. And we have to remain—it's I quite humbling—to you know to realise that that was a commitment to sustainability, if ever there was one. You know, so again, we've become you know, tw- maybe thirty years ago. Uh, if you had have come to this part of London, you would have turned your nose up at it and tried to go very very quickly <laughs> through it. Um, you know, I mean, I remember I remember coming here then, and it was not you know not this wonderful place. You know, that it, you know, that it is now. So we have been d- instrumental. We didn't have the Shangri-La and the Shard around the corner. We didn't have the Shangri-La and the Shard on the corner or were well, quite a number of hotels around. I mean, but, um, and you could afford property. That was <laughs> yeah, the one yeah. thing. Because <laughs> <you know, laughs> I, uh, I had just bought my flat um, just up north of here and um, my brother had said, well, you should look for your, you know, to, you're on the property ladder now, you should try to go somewhere else. And the only other area that I could afford was here. You know, so and uh, I chose not to because I was turning my nose about it then. But I'm not turning my nose about it now. <laughs> so, but it still is, you know, part of the development of the area and the challenges then that come across with that because, um, you know, this wasn't the it wasn't the wealthiest area of London for a lot for a long time. Yeah, maybe just to situate it. So where the market is, it's at what's called London Bridge
3: which is more the tube station that orients people but what it actually refers to it's at the south bank of the actual London Bridge over the Thames Mm -hmm. which for years and years was was in some ways the wrong side of the river in terms of where it's across from Parliament it's across from St. Paul's Mm -hmm. but like well there's been a lot of historical evolution, although I think consistently for thousands of years, it was sort of the wrong side of the Thames, it's only...
4: Oh, we're, we're Badens at this side of the river, <laughs> we always have been. Um, this area was uh, known as, the was one of the liberties because we're, the London Bridge connects Southwark, the Borough of Southwark and um, Borough Market to the actual financial center of London, the city of London, um, and on either side of the city, you have these places that were defined as liberties which just meant that it was basically any anything went whereas in the city itself, uh, you, were, you know, alcohol wasn't allowed. Um, the prost- prostitution was—you was, know—it was—it was—it was, was very bad. I mentioned prostitution because the Bishop of Winchester um, actually licensed the prostitutes in this area, so it was kind of a bit corrupt. It gives you it. an idea of the flavor, <laughs> its, you know, and the... in its, in its, <laughs> it's own way. Um, and London Bridge itself, for, for for many years, was where the trading that took place. And uh, the, you know, the reason why the local people bought it in 1750s was because they, the, the the city guild tried to close it down because it was just too much it was getting a bit too um, a bit too debauched you know um, so um, but they again it, it comes down to there were still so people were benefiting because where produce and wholesalers were selling food it also meant that the local people were getting it cheap and that integration between a market and a community was very uh, you know was very tight and and um, I think that that has continued on even though we've had these changes that, you know, it's extended out. Londoners love Borough Market um, and it's become a very iconic place, you know, in its own right.
3: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you before we go to break, do you think this, this both history and existence and purpose of Borough Market has really helped or even led the kind of food revolution that's happening in certainly in London and and hopefully growing across the UK do you think the market itself is is played a role or do you, do you think that's maybe taking too much
4: on I think we would we would want to say that we provided the space but you know the, the people that were they um, you know the, the the pioneers people like Randolph Hodgson Hudson from um, Neil Shard Dairy, who I think single-handedly Revolutionized cheese production um, in this country as a reaction against the uh, post war unified cheddar. He went out and uh, spoke to the, um, you know, to to the dairy producers and, and and bought their milk and helped them make these wonderful cheeses that 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 we now produce more different types of cheese than France does, I believe, and a lot of those are available in the States. So he was a pioneer that has a space in the market. Um, and um, again, the. the Providing the space that, that Henrietta was able to bring um, all these amazing producers in the 90s that that that, that were there, and yet as the, the the old myth about England being a place where you couldn't get decent food, the amazing food was there. It was just all being exported. So we began to start celebrating, and I think you know Jamie Oliver came along as well, and he was a great champion of British food and of Borough Market as well. So I think there was just this perfect. Um, well it was at the time of Britpop as well so it was again re-looking at the whole idea of British identity and actually saying, you know what, it can be something good and it can be something brilliant and it can extend beyond pop music <laughs> we can go to food as well and it, 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 uh, Borough Market definitely played its part in that and I think continues to um, with regards to the commitment, uh, you know, we've got a, a, a chair, Christine Elliott, whose commitment to sustainability is, is second to none. I mean, and I think that to, to, to know that we have a group of trustees um, you know, under Christine that are committed to the sustainability, this is what our future is, and this is what our new message is. So the message of British, of good British food production is, you know, it's sustainable and delicious.
3: Excellent. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. That's the perfect segue to, to our second half, and because we're going to dive deeper with David about how Borough Market and his colleagues that he was just giving kudos to is, is leading the way in terms of sustainability, and particularly sustainability related to both the sustainability of the market and food production in Britain. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today.
3: Welcome back. We're talking to David Matchett, head of food policy development at London's innovative Borough Market. So not every food market has a head of food policy development. That seems very very forward thinking as we've been discussing. so why does Borough market
4: have one of you and and what is your role in Tim? Well, Borough market has one of me because of this commitment to sustainability and this commitment to holding a market in perpetuity um, It's a new role that's been the, that has been uh, that's come up over the last year and I think that in tandem with, I would say, the the Mayor of London has got a London Food Strategy and a London Food Board um, and the Chair of the London Food Board happens to be one of our trustees, Claire Pritchard. So the idea of food policy and actually having, um, you know, looking at, well, it's okay having all these ideas about sustainability, but what do they actually mean and how can we actually influence, how can we actually bring about some sort of change into a system which is... um, at at, at at best in crisis and at worst potentially coming into conflict, you know, we're living in a world at the moment where there's a lot of change, um, especially with regards to the UK and especially with regards to, you know, our place within the world, our place within Europe and um, a lot of change has been mooted but, you know, we, we, we still don't really know what's going to be happening. Um, this side of well the other the other side of October, so I think that part of, David is referring to Brexit. To Brexit <laughs> I didn't I didn't actually say it because it's become you know it's a, it's, a, it's a hard word for some to get off. I know it there. is, but yeah. I know it is. We have to prepare. We have to prepare for whatever you know, for, and especially I think that with the you know with our traders here because everything is related to you know we, we, we import so much from the paper that something is wrapped into the produce itself to the chemicals that are used to treat the water to the power to the gas to the electricity you know to the people that are actually selling the food everything is um um you know we're we're in europe at the moment and it's a highly integrated global system that
3: often is not clearly it is not as apparent to people often in their daily lives if they're not involved in that production process
4: well, well un, unless but well, you've no reason I mean I think this is just one of the things unless you are you've no reason to know what's going on within yeah. it because um you know there are things which I don't know what various industries are, are are like and I have no idea I might have an opinion but I've got no idea um, but one of the things is that we do uh you know we have been learning and I think on the human level has been one of the biggest things that we have found from um you know one of our um one of the, the the core businesses at Borough Market is uh, Monica Linton, who set up Brindisa, um, importing a wonderful Spanish produce um, for the for last thirty years almost. And um, Monica was, was talking about you know the impact that this was having on staff and finding staff and staff not wanting to come over to London. And London's an international city and a very diverse city. So um, you know there's a lot that we need to take into consideration. And I would say that coming back to this is where um in terms of uh, my take on what on our take on what we would say like about the food policy is food policy development is is you know we, we want we want to have something which people are committed to we want to talk to people about what they would expect us to have um, in terms of what our principles should be we're looking to the United Nations uh, goals of sustainable development. Um, we're looking to our friends at the Oxford symposium um, uh, other academics who've work closely with South Bank University, um, have got connections up with King's College, So, but also with the farmers, also with the people that work locally, um, with the staff, with the trustees. We want our food policy to be very, very much a collaboration and one based on, on, on commitment to, like, like what, what do we agree on and then how are we going to commit to it and then how can we start to bring about change within this so it isn't just a simple matter of um you know nailing up a a a load of conditions up on the wall of hogwarts and saying thou shalt and thou shalt not this is uh, the approach is very very much one of 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 collaboration um and being informed and finding out how we can actually bring about this change so one of the things i either heard or read
3: was despite some of the rhetoric about uh, european oppression i suppose is that Britain actually had a leadership role, is, well, I'm asking you if this is correct, if Britain had a leadership role in actually setting what certain food policy
4: standards are in the EU? Well, yes. Right. We that. have the, and we followed the rules that we made to, to, to the last letter of the rule. I mean, I th- when you look at um, animal welfare, uh, especially with regards to pigs, we, we, we've got the highest standards and uh, the highest standards of animal welfare you know this is a country that um, there is such a humanity and and I know that I I can very easily (laughs) look to say well if you're going to be you know and I hear the argument that I do hear quite a lot at the moment that if you're if you're that concerned about animal welfare then don't eat meat um, and I think that that is a very fair point. I would find it difficult arguing against that. But if you are going to, you don't want the idea of someone of, of something suffering, you know. And um, this is a nation of animal lovers. it's a nation where we uh, we, we do care. Um, so as I said, the, um, the 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 climate that we're in at the moment is is uh, wh- when uh, as a person working in food, it, it it's a little bit confusing um, because I one of our trustees professor uh, ex-trustee professor Tim Lang headed up the uh, food policy unit at uh, City University and um, you know the, he set up was instrumental in setting up the food standards agency and these food standards I think that, that is what a worry that is for a lot of people at the moment is that well we quite like the food standards. It isn't just about well, should bananas be straight or not straight? It's not about that. It's about what is the impact on the planet of what we're actually doing, and um, what is the impact on the other beings that we're eating, and um, how can we, uh, you know, how, how can we best manage this if we're going to go down that route? So, I think that that's it. It, It's big at the moment. <laughs>
3: So, uh, one, we're kind of talking about a lot of things we can't yet control, but uh, come back to things that you guys are here at Borough Market able to control or to some degree and implement. Could you give us some examples? Because there are a bunch of fairly cutting edge or progressive programs particularly related to food waste and things that borough market has tackled and maybe you could just tell us a couple of examples and and how they work at borough market
4: well i'm going to start with my favorite example because i was actually walking through charing cross station the other day and i saw a water fountain where you could go and fill up your water bottle and i thought i love this and um a couple of years ago was when we actually installed um, water fountains, three water fountains throughout the market, and we told traders, "Right, no longer are you allowed to sell bottled water." Um, this was on the back of a did decision. Did people gasp? They were expecting it because a few years before that, we said we didn't want any bottled soft drinks sold. Um, so that was that was part of it. Then the idea that we were—they did gasp, and some people were saying, "Well, what are we going to do?" and so we offered them uh, water bottles to sell instead <laughs> so that people could come and actually get access to free water. Um, and this uh, that initiative, I think, has... has, has uh, the idea that you can actually make a decision which is ultimately providing the public with free water and visitors to London, anyone basically, can come along and get free water rather than have to spend anywhere between £1 and £2.60 was what I saw for a bottle of mineral water, uh, you know, recently, and it, 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 it's water, it's, it's, it should be a human right, I would say, you know, so um, that's one of the things that we did in terms of, um, we have zero landfill because of our waste management system that we actually have. Um, so that nothing, goes, nothing gets buried. Everything in the market gets recycled one way or the other. And, um, you know, food goes into um, a, a, a compactor where it can be composted, where it can be. Um, yes, I wanted to ask you, I saw something that I had to look up
3: because um, clearly I'm not a scientist but someone said something about you participate in
4: anaerobic digestion yeah
3: um, which I, what, is that a human process or a no. not what, what does no. that mean
4: no it means it means that the food is um, all uh, any any of the food waste that comes from the catered food or whatever um, gets put into a great big uh, container and that gets taken away and then it gets composted it's basically like a formation of you know it forms a compost which then gets um, gets b- b- Used as a fertilizer for soils and it's you know it's composted as well. So um, so, so
3: none of the, the the food waste, either spoiled food or or leftover food or food that can't be sold by the food standards we were just talking about, none of it goes into a landfill.
4: No, well. and most recently as well, we took part in, a, in a, an experiment with a company called um, Ectocycle where some of the um, <laughs> uh, veg waste was turned into insect protein. And this is a local business initiative. What's insect protein? Well, you grow um, insects in the food waste, and then they get turned into a protein, a source of protein. Oh, So oh, it's okay. eating insects.
3: <laughs> yes, that will take some people a, a bit. I mean, it's very au courant right now with, is. with insects. And, you know, uh, René Redzepi, I think, was into that because it's something Mexicans have... Uh, certain parts of Mexico, they have insects as part of their diet, like crickets, and uh, you're talking about slightly, a certain set of insects that actually grow out of waste,
4: yes. right? Well, they grow in, yeah, but, they grow in the waste.
3: T- you, you can't imagine anything more securely no, um, sustainable than that.
4: It's a very, it's, it's such a challenge because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very old school <laughs> when it comes down to it. I know that it's a form of a very, very good, ethical, sustainable source of protein but I have got the reaction that I feel like a lot of people have, which is just like, it's insect. You don't eat insects. I wasn't brought up to eat insects. And even though it can be in a form of insect flour, and I don't actually know, the interesting thing is the younger generation see it as um, and people that go to the gym that are looking for cheap, quick protein sources. And we've had one of these products in the market on sale. Um, they don't have that same uh, reaction to it that I would. So, again, it's one of the things that I have to look at in my job is that I have to bring in things that may not necessarily be for me. (laughs) You know, the younger generation are are leading the way, I think, in in sustainability and um, sustainable food as well. And And, and, and
3: my impression is that that also, the philosophy that's applied in terms of sustainability is then applied to who gets to trade at the market. Mm. And so... Would you say this is something that has been enforced or imposed upon the traders, or because of the traders you selected here, they're already oriented toward that way of thinking and, and production in particular?
4: Yes, is the answer to both, all of those questions. We do make selections. I always say that Borough Market is a very is a perfect example of our food system because there is a lot of creative tension in it. There are traders that have been trading here for twenty years. Um, that still could be very current. One of them is um, Lizzie Vine from Wild Beef. And 20 years ago, people would have been buying her food because um, they are uh, Welsh breeds. It was a rare breed. Um, The whole idea of it coming from Devon um, was absolutely amazing. It tasted really good. Now, um, the message is, well, it's pasture-fed and it's very good meat for a paleo diet... Because of the fact it's completely pasture-fed, so the messaging has changed, but the product is <laughs> the, same. the same. And, but this is where I think that part of what Borough Market looking forward, this is what we need to do. Because um, you know, it's, it's it's that counter reaction. I, I was I was a punk in the in the in the in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, and you're, you you rebel against what the status quo is. So therefore, the young people are hearing one message and actually thinking, well, we're going to do something actually different. And if we're able to look, if the product is good enough, the story is there. That's what I always think. We just, because, you know, good provenance-led food, and it's healthy. It's by its very, very nature, it can be healthy. And that's, we need to look at what those, you know, what those other, um, what, what, what the story is that we want to tell. And that's all about looking forward. And it's all about, you know, one of the programs that I'm doing is a, um, a food futures program. So And um, our, and what does that mean? They, what um, is a
3: food futures program?
4: Well, um, a couple of years ago, a managing director, uh, Darren Hennigan, and I were having a conversation about, um, about the market and just like, what, what did we want to do and what was going on? And um, it was one of those, as I always say, sometimes the planets just happen to align. And we were looking at all the work that's going on in London um, with regards to... Technology that is all about trying to maintain source and give people information on food, the relationship of food to health and well-being, uh, also for, sourcing and where products come from. Other initiatives which were taking place in London were this rise of um, people producing um, kimchi and fermented foods because gut health playing this part and we uh, Darren just said you know we need to start making a place for this here we need to raise the lens of sustainability beyond just regionality and beyond just organic and start to look at what else is going on. So I was very, very lucky that I was in the position where that was my job to task that. And it's led to a number of initiatives, one where we're now working with the South Bank University and uh, the London Agri-Food Innovation Clinic with, um, I would say, my colleagues, um, Liam McNamara and Sam Ash, where we have a programme where uh, new and -and up-and-coming businesses are taken care of as part of this LAFEC program and given um, advice from academics, advice on marketing, advice on health and safety, food safety, all the expertise that they need. And then they come and they trade a borough market for a week as part of the actual program. So the innovation and the innovative traders that we've had in as a result of that have been one company called Halo who, um, do do you drink, um, you know the coffee that comes in the little metal pods?
3: Oh yes. yeah, yeah, no I, 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 or... or I didn't say yeah. it. I,
4: right, Okay. Well, right. a company that has uh, produces instead of using those aluminium pods, yeah. which are not the most sustainable when it comes yeah. down to it, produces pods made out of sugar beet waste. So the fibre that comes from sugar beet. And this was one of the, you know, one of the we, we, we launched our program with. This is what we should be looking at at the moment. If you're going to use one of those pod machines, at least have something that's going to biodegrade in six weeks. Rather than something which is quite difficult to actually extract the metal from you know within that so again this is one of our one of the traders that are in our food, in our part of our food futures program um, and then recently a couple of weeks ago we um, decided um, well we, we had a market that uh, again this came from Christine Elliott, our chair, motivated me to go and um, let's have a vegan market. But we didn't call it a vegan market. We called it an innovation market. But all of the traders that were there um, were committed to a vegan ideal. And it was absolutely incredible to to see this group of traders that um, brought in amazing produce, brought in really interesting new customers to the market Um, and also form their own little tribe, in a way. So, again, this is about forward-facing and about our Food Futures programme, because this is what we need to be doing. These are the new customers for the future, and we need to adapt, and we need to adopt, and we need to change and react to that. And, you know, I think that if if we're holding the beacon for that, good.
3: Well, I think... On that deeper note, um, I, don't, I don't want to run out of time to talk about uh, your role with uh, Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. So just maybe briefly, that's coming up in about a month, and um, explain your role. You can, I think you can explain what it is through talking about your role with it. And then I think it's also helpful because it tends to be Oxford, and it's about presenting papers and intellectual thought. It's helpful to sort of define who it's for, and who might consider attending, versus who might just consider, you know, watching the 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 or listening to the
4: recordings of the sessions later. Oh well, uh, I was very very lucky that um, I think it was four or five years ago. Um, I first went to the Oxford Symposium and the, um, on food and cookery. The subject was food and communications. And um, we, at that point, our, our director of communications, Kate Howell, decided it would have been a good idea for me to go and explore and um, learn more about, um, I mean, it really was about about the power of communication and the relationship of food and communication. Phenomenal subject. I mean, that we're here now talking about this. Communicating, so, about, yes, food. communicating <laughs> about food. Communicating about food. Um, I suppose, as you said, I I was, in in one way, being quite um, introverted. I would say, in terms of what my uh, what my job was and the way that I looked at things and what have you. So I went along to this, and I just got completely transfixed, because um, you know I'm 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 not an academic, but I have got an academic perspective on things, and um, I've always said that Borough Market feels to me like it's a bit like a a a personal art project, uh, because it's more than just putting things in place that are nuts and bolts. It's about the people. It's about having something that actually changed. And I found myself in this, um, sitting in this wonderful um, uh, dining hall um, with people, and it felt the most liberating and free thing because of just the free thinking that was going on. And um, As well as being educated, which I was, I felt like I was really part of the conversation and was actually able to help being part of the conversation then actually thinking maybe there's a conversation here that we can change Um, and it was all through food and again so I approached it was actually Ursula and I'd said listen I think we need to do something together Borough Market needs to do something with this because we're very much the practical wing rather than the Academic, you know, with the ethereal academic, eclectic place, but yet there was such a connection between the two. And so the next year um, I helped with the curation of one of the meals. Um, producing, uh, I think we had some produce, the, the next year was awful, so we produced some food that was made from um, surplus food, which again... And you were
3: saying awful as
4: an O-F-F-A-L, O-F-F-A-L yes. there was an awful year at this. Yes, museum. so it was um, surplus food, which is one of the programs that we have here with Plan Z Heroes, where food surplus to the market goes towards um, uh, local charities and people that actually need it. So. Um, we did that and then that was whenever, uh, I think at the end of the symposium, Ursula uh, asked me if I'd like to be one of the trustees. Well, actually, she didn't ask me if I'd like to be. She told me that yeah. I was going <laughs> to was one It was one of those offers and it was just like, I mean, it felt like such an honour and I really didn't know what was my place within this Um, and that was part of what I realised that actually this is what the symposium really is about, it's about connecting and everybody that's working in food has got a place to be there and at one point I would have felt maybe a little bit intimidated because of the academic clout um, I mean, especially the year after, when I realised I was then presenting one of my <laughs> meals, and um, I think the night, you know, the night before, I was sitting and uh, looking around. I've said this to Elizabeth and to Claudia. You know, I just felt like I was sitting in my bookshelf at home with all the people that had been writing. But yet, you know, the intimidation was just purely in my head because that wasn't. It was a place where I found really find the deepest level of acceptance for what I believe, for what I feel, and, you know, people that actually share my sense of humour as well, which is, <laughs> and, which is vital for me, you yeah. know. So, well, I was going to
3: say, too. So, I was going <laughs> to break it down in, in more um, just pragmatic ways. The symposium kind of has three parts. It has, as you said, this academic side where mm. people literally present research papers mm. um, but often in it, who are very good speakers and articulate them in ways. Then the second part, which you've been very involved in, is in this series of lunches and dinners mm. based around a theme but eating and the consumption of it. And you've never seen a group of people more interested in the discussion of the menu and what they're about to it's have and how it's yeah. cooked. Yeah. So if that's you, this is something you would enjoy. That's the second part. And the third Part is what you said is actually what happens in between everything. Mm-hmm. And for those who are enamored with some of the world's most accomplished food writers, they are there, and rather than being abstract, godlike beings, they're sitting next to you, sweating in the dining hall if it's really hot. But it's <laughs> amazing to have that accessibility mm-hmm. to so many luminaries. Um, and and would you say that while it has this academic bent, I don't think there's a academic requirement of any kind if you would like to attend. Is that, well, I'm so? there. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, no, you're a trustee, no. so you
3: have to be there. Yeah, but but,
4: but anyway. in terms of the academic side, I you know I, I I I'm not. I mean I I think that it's very very important that is you know there's a scholarliness which is at its core. But I think that the symposium is. You know, it, it's totally inclusive and welcomes all people from wherever they work in the food world as well as the academics. And, you know, I think it's this balance and this it's food and cookery. And cookery is a practical art, as well as being the academic that you know the academic side that goes um, in at the back of it, and marrying that up with gastronomy. You know, every, every everything is there, and that's what makes I think that's what just makes the mix so unique. And it still is. I mean, just talking about it now. I mean, I, I'm I'm actually um, feeling a bit bad at the moment because I uh, Jake Tilson, who is the, the wonderful designer who um, basically defines what the symposium is. On paper and what it looks like in the website is um, waiting for um, some information from me, which hopefully he's going to receive this afternoon. (laughs) Otherwise um, well, we're definitely going to have a meal, but um, I'm not sure that the menu... So stay stay tuned. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So do you
3: see food markets as part of the future of good food? Would you rather shop directly from producers at a market than at a big box grocery store? Let us know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. All right, after the break, David's going to share his own Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Coral Lee, and I'm the host of Meant to Be Eaten here on HRN. Every week, I look at cross-cultural exchange in food and contemporary media. What determines authenticity? What, if anything, gets lost in translation when cooking foods from another's culture? You can find Meant to Be Eaten wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
4: When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose
5: mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should've.
4: But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
3: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career.
4: All right, David, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Wow. Well, this was quite a question for me because um, I, I grew up with um, n- not Julia Childs on TV, but with um, Fanny Craddock and with uh, Graeme Kerr. And um, I do have this vague memory of definitely this television program where, um, and I grew up on a farm, and um, Ducks and ducklings were featured very strongly as being these wonderful little cute things that we ate the eggs, but we never ate the actual creatures themselves. And um, one of the Graham Care programs that I remember was this very interesting and strange, wonderful lady who was talking about duck, and they were cooking, <clears throat> they were cooking different types d- d- duck in different ways to show how it could be cooked. And I was appalled. I couldn't believe this. Why would they cook these little ducklings? I didn't know who it was, but the memory stuck uh, stuck by me, and it was only some time later that I found that it was actually a programme, <coughs> pardon me, where um, Graham Kerr had Julia Childs on this programme. So that was... Um, uh, but I think that gave the context of, the, of of people in television and the power of chefs and the power of cooking in television. So um, that was a memory, I would say. Now, in terms of influence, it really was only whenever I came to the symposium that the breadth of the influence and who Julia actually was, that really started to, um, you know, to, to open up the, the doorway. I mean, there's this amazing relationship that, you know, Britain and America has always had in terms of influence and and, and cultural influence and what have you. So I think that that's where I learned about it there. But even more recently, I was actually asking in the office um, last week, and I said, you know, does anybody here know who Julia Charles was? Yes, yes, yes. And I said, you know, I've been asked about this question of influence. And one of my colleagues, um, Lucy Charles, who has written a book called Cakeography, said, well, she's the reason I wrote my book, and it was like, oh, right, okay. I'm going to tell your story. <laughs> Obviously, your story sounds more relevant. <laughs> no, How did that come about? And she said, well, it was because I saw the movie, the Julia, um, Julia and Julia, Julia and Julia movie, and that, that actually was where um, Lucy had said that actually just made me think maybe I could write a book, and so she did. So I think that it's the the, the influence is all pervasive in its own way, and that whilst. I may not know a lot of the influence because I know that um, Claudia, Claudia Rodon especially, is, is just like, you know, is, 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 is who I think is like our, our equivalent of Julia in her own way. So the influence is all around and I know that. And very definitely whenever I've been looking at some of the, the, the programs on YouTube and I, I know that she'd definitely be the sort of, definitely the sort of, um, reminded me of the sort of women strong women that I grew up with that so influenced my lives <laughs> and I know that she very definitely would have been the person at the symposium that I would be sitting beside you know asking her why she was killing those ducks absolutely and I know she'd give me a very good reason and, she would have, and yeah. abs- you know and that's well it's, um, <clears throat> you know, she that. might have said something like, well, David, I didn't kill them
3: personally. They were already dead. No, but got-
4: it was, it's still that engagement. I mean, that's the one thing that you can see when I've seen on the program is just like that, that, that level of engagement and that level of, of and fun. I mean, that's what comes across as well is that fun and laughter. She's very definitely be someone I'd love to have at my table.
3: Well, that's that link up between Borough Market being fun, educational, good food and food and communication. We just brought it all back together. Thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I would like to give you this, um, in the spirit of cookery writing, I would like to just give you this this little gift of a Borough Market cookbook.
3: Excellent. Thank (laughs) you
4: very much. All right. Thanks to everyone for
3: listening. Please follow us on social media, as always. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram and at Julia Child J.C.F. on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. To learn more about or even visit Borough Market, go to boroughmarket.org.uk. You can get a virtual introduction via social media. Search at Borough Market, all one word, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, Borough is B-O-R-O-U-G-H, market, M-A-R-K-E-T. And just as David just very kindly gifted me, there is even a recent The Borough Market Cookbook written by award-winning UK food writer Ed Smith, and it features recipes and stories from a year at the market, published by Hutter and Staunton in 2018. If you want to learn more about the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, go to oxfordsymposium.org.uk. It's happening July 12th to 14th at St. Catherine's College at Oxford. The Joya Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorney. Please remember to give us a review or ask your friends to give us a review. It'll really help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.
5: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community?